Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Lisa Laramore Wallet, Associate Professor of Law, and Justin M. Roach, Junior Faculty Scholar at Stanford Law School, and Rebecca Weirs, a student at Stanford Law School and the Stanford School of Engineering. We will discuss their article, University Patenting is Private Law Serving Public Values, which will be published in the Michigan State Law Review. So welcome to the show, Lisa and Rebecca. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, no, the pleasure's all mine. Um, as you know, Lisa, I've been following your work in this area for quite some time, and it's always been fantastic and really provocative and interesting. And this new article is is no exception at all. So I, I wanted to start by congratulating you and Rebecca for yet another fantastic intervention in into this space. Thank you. So for listeners who may not be familiar with kind of patent law, patent policy, and specifically how patent policy works in the university space. I wonder if you could just kind of give a brief background history of university patents, sort of like where do they come from? Why do they exist in the first place? And sort of what were they intended to accomplish? Sure. So, I mean, universities have been patenting things for actually quite a long time, but the rise in university patents is really targeted to the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 and uh, and the similar Stevenson-Weidler Act for uh, patenting at national labs, which clarified the rules that universities can patent the results of federally funded research. So most of the research that happens at universities is funded by grants. The federal government's the largest source of those grants. And before 1980, it was unclear whether and, and when uh, the university could patent any inventions that resulted from that research. So after the, the Bayh-Dole Act, it's clear the university can patent things subject to certain restrictions, such as a, a preference for domestic manufacture and a requirement that they share some of the resulting royalties with the inventors at the um, university lab. So when Congress made that shift, right, and said that, you know, we want universities to be able to to obtain patents on research that's been that's been funded at least in part by by federal by, by in part or in whole by by federal grants what were they intending to accomplish i mean why was that shift made what was the goal what did they think would happen or what did they want to happen so i think there was largely a concern about some inventions not making it out of the university lab. I mean, the, if you look at the legislative history, there's discussions about inventions gathering dust on university shelves. And the intention was that by allowing the patents, it would help the public actually get the benefit of some of these inventions by providing more of an incentive for these to be commercialized and to reach the public. So that this commercialization idea is, is reflected in the statutory text and the legislative history and um the commentators who've discussed the Bayh-Dole Act, um, it's, there's also been numerous critiques of the extent to which commercialization is actually necessary for many university inventions, including in uh, 
my own writing and uh, I know you've written about the university patent litigation context. So that was the original idea, but I think it's clear that it's not sufficient to justify the full extent of university patent activity today. So so the idea then was that by, at least initially, that by giving universities the ability to, to patent inventions arising out of federally funded research, that it would facilitate the kind of use and distribution and commercialization of of the research like what were the different what were the different ways in which people in congress and sort of commentators outside anticipated that that might happen in other words what did what did people think that Bidol was going to do and how did how did people think that universities were going to respond to these kinds of incentives yeah i think that they thought that universities would patent more uh, a lot of the lobbying for Baidu was driven by the biomedical industry. And I think the, the canonical example of how university patenting might work well is in the pharmaceutical context. If you think about something like a new drug that's developed in a university lab and seems promising for treating cancer and studies in mice or something like that, um, the universities aren't in the business of running clinical trials. There's currently very little federal funding or government funding for clinical trials. Most of the late stage drug development happens at the, uh, in the private sector. And the private sector screens things out of their pipelines if there aren't sufficient patents on them. So by allowing the university to patent it and then to license, to it, license it to a private firm, then it gives them some incentive to do the clinical trials to figure out whether this drug is actually effective in treating cancer and to bring it to market. So I think that's the... Uh, paradigmatic success story of, of how this is, envi- is envisioned to work. And there were also experts at the time who expected uh, university researchers, once they had patents and were able to, to reap royalties from those patents, to be more involved in the commercialization of their own inventions, um, that that would give them an incentive to uh, transfer the knowledge that wasn't captured in the patent itself. So in your paper, you engage with the question of whether and when exclusivity is necessary for the commercialization of of patents. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what your what your research sort of disclosed or discovered about sort of when that seems to work and when it seems not to be so important. Yeah, so I think it's a open question to some degree. There are some cases in which we have pretty good evidence that exclusivity is important for commercialization, like the case of a pharmaceutical drug where a company won't have an incentive to do clinical trials unless it has strong patent rights and we don't have an alternative commercialization incentive. But there are very many university inventions for which exclusivity doesn't seem necessary, including all of the ones that are currently broadly non-exclusively licensed. So famous examples of these include Stanford's Cohen-Boyer patents on early recombinant DNA technology or Columbia's Axel patents on a method for inserting foreign DNA into cells, which were foundational platform technologies in the biotech industry 
they were broadly non-exclusively licensed to all of the early biotech firms, brought in a huge amount of money for Stanford and, and Columbia, uh, $255 million for Stanford and $790 for Columbia. But it's not clear that that patent did anything to help these technologies get commercialized because these were the basis of the biotech industry. Everyone wanted to use them because they were valuable technologies. And so effectively, these patents are serving as a tax on early entrance into this industry. And if you want to justify those patents, I think it has to be something other than the commercialization story. I wonder if you could kind of take a step back then from this sort of exclusive, non-exclusive licensing issue and sort of talk about what the difference between exclusive and non-exclusive licensing of patents by universities tells us about the consistency of sort of actual university patent practice with the sort of policy goals of of Bidol and sort of what university patents were supposed to accomplish. Sure. So the, the basic, I mean, the, the legal difference between an exclusive and non-exclusive license, just for any listeners who aren't familiar with patent licensing, is that a exclusive license is to only one firm that then has the rights to that technology. And if anyone else is trying to use it, then they and the university can sue to prevent them from entering the market. And, and in those cases, because you have that exclusivity, then you can charge a higher price, which has costs for consumers, for subsequent users, but also has the benefit that it provides then an additional incentive for them to be developing that technology. Um, with a non-exclusive license, then uh, you don't have the market power to be charging a super competitive price. And so you don't have as much harm to consumers, but it's not clear that that non-exclusive license is doing much work in giving an incentive to commercialize it as opposed to acting as a, a small tax on people who are trying to commercialize it. And thus in, in those cases, it's, uh, it's less well with the, historical justification of why we have university patents in the first place. In addition, you, you talk about the sort of role that exclusivity might play in sort of encouraging information transfers from people within the universities who are engaging in the research and development that leads to the patents in, in the first place, sort of to what extent does that information transfer play into the, the questions you're addressing in this paper? Right. So, so as I mentioned earlier, one of the additional justifications for the patenting regime of Baidol was that university inventors who have um, the ability to get royalties from patent licensing would have a greater incentive to then spend time with the patent licensee and um, help them develop the technology using information that wasn't actually written down in the patent. Um, and, and what we saw empirically was that that there is evidence for inventor involvement being helpful for commercialization success, but there wasn't a lot of empirical support for, uh, for the link between patenting and, um, 
and exclusivity and inventor involvement. Um, and, and in addition, we, we also know from tech transfer offices that uh, inventors, university inventors are much more likely to be willing to engage with the further commercialization of their devices or their inventions um, if the tech transfer office opts for an exclusive license because the inventors have other research and other work that they want to do and just don't have the time to go out and, and transfer their other knowledge to a hundred licensees or even a handful of licensees. Well, so maybe you could expand on some of those observations a little bit, like, you know, to the extent that sort of providing incentives for university researchers to engage in future information transfer to companies commercializing patented inventions and discoveries is, is, is valuable. Sort of what seems to be the factors that maximize their willingness to do so? And to what extent does, does patenting and sort of the way that universities engage in patent sort of uh, patent licensing and patent policy play a role in that? So exclusivity seems like exclusive licensing and exclusivity seem like important factors in determining whether an inventor will be willing to be involved um, on the other hand, though, that exclusivity doesn't have to come from patents. So it is common practice for inventors also to just have uh, consulting arrangements with private companies where they'll go into that company and provide knowledge, uh, whether written down in the patent or not. And those consulting arrangements can also be exclusive and so that should make us skeptical of, of whether patents are actually necessary, either to incentivize inventor involvement or even to um, provide exclusivity. Well, so have you seen or did you see in the course of your research sort of costs associated with patenting as well? I mean, you know, sort of the idea is that this is going to that, you know, that patenting was going to reduce costs and kind of facilitate these transactions. Were there ways in which patents made it kind of more expensive or kind of increased transaction costs on the ability to bring inventions and discoveries to market? So we, we certainly know that, that when patents are used to uh, allow higher prices to be charged for products, that that is a cost. And then there are, of course, the administrative costs of, of, obtaining a patent and running a tech transfer office. And so for that reason, from the evidence that, that we saw, there are, there are other mechanisms that we would, we would guess would have lower costs for getting inventor involvement, like directly having a consulting arrangement or using other types, um, other types of incentives like giving the uh, the inventor equity in a company rather than rather than patent royalties. And, and just to take a step back, I want to emphasize that how un empirically uncertain these benefits and these costs are. And I think you're, Brian, asking the right question of, like, are there costs associated with the patenting and getting the inventors involved in this way? Uh, and the 
On the benefit side, it's also unclear how much this patent incentive is really encouraging inventor involvement or how important that inventor involvement is in commercialization and for what kinds of technologies that uh, is important. So I, I think Rebecca did a fantastic job in this part of the paper of looking at what literature we have about the role of the patent incentive in this tacit knowledge transfer. Uh, but ultimately, there are a lot of still open empirical questions. Mm. So in your research, did it seem that sort of the role of patents might have different effects in different industries, like might be more beneficial in some industries and less beneficial in others? And if so, sort of how might we be able to distinguish between different fields in terms of thinking about sort of when this is a uh, a an approach that's likely to be efficient as opposed to an approach that's likely to actually just, you know, impose inefficiencies and, and, and impose costs. So I think it's clear that there are technology industry differences in how the university patenting system works. The, as I've mentioned, the best example of how things work well is in the pharmaceutical industry where it's pretty clear we need some incentive to get things commercialized. What is unclear is whether, pharmaceuticals are really a special case that we should have special rules for? And is there actually any other technology for which the patents are doing more good than harm? Because in many other industries, exclusive licenses are less common. There are high profile cases in which universities have sued a lot of tech companies over high tech patents. The BU suing many tech companies over the blue LED patent was one example that made a lot of uh, news and, and caused some people to call BU a patent troll. But cases like that, where the technology is being developed independently of the patent license and the universities coming in afterwards and asking for some royalty, there that commercialization story is not making sense and the patent's clearly working differently. And I think there's a burden on the defenders of university patents and vital to actually do the work to figure out if there's a justification for allowing those inventions to be patented. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things that, you know, I've all often heard this kind of story that like, you know, the revenues from these patents are coming back to fund future innovation. I mean, to what extent did you see that as being sort of a salient feature of what's going on with university patent policy? And I think that revenue story is a really important and mostly overlooked piece of the story here, overlooked largely because tech transfer offices don't like to talk about it. They like to talk about the role of patents as getting the inventions out there to benefit the public. But as we discussed, that commercialization story doesn't justify the bulk of university patenting today. And so if you're going to justify something like the Stanford Cohen Boyer patents or the BU LED patents, you need to look to something like the, the role of the revenue. Uh, the Bayh-Dole Act requires universities to reinvest any excess revenue in science, research, and education. And universities that have successful tech transfer programs do have a, a source of revenue that's valuable for spurring additional research, research that's difficult to fund with federal grants. Um, the Overall in the U.S., the net license revenues that are coming into universities exceed the, the legal costs. But the 
gains here are very unequally spread. Many university tech transfer offices aren't making money. And you know, more importantly, we don't actually have a lot of good empirical evidence on this because much of the information is privately held by the universities. So we only see what they're reporting to the um, in survey data. But I, I think that the universities and their tech transfer offices should take this more seriously. And if this is the best justification for some of these patents, then make that case, show that this is a viable source of revenue and that this is increasing the amount that we're spending on R&D. Mm. Well, so you point in the paper that sort of pharmaceuticals seem like the best case for university patents, especially because exclusivity seems so relevant to commercialization. And yet, I mean, one point that you made that I found really interesting in the paper was that, like, I mean, a lot of that is because of regulatory burdens imposed by the government before pharmaceuticals come, before drugs come come to market. I mean, you know, are, are patents the only way to solve this problem? And are, are they the best way to solve this problem? Or might there be other approaches that could be equally or even more effective? Patents are definitely not the only way and not necessarily the best way. I've written separate, separately about this and work with Daniel Hemmel, looking at the variety of innovation policies that we have for solving different kinds of innovation problems. And for this particular problem, the problem of taking a early stage drug candidate and doing the work to figure out, is this actually safe and effective for use in humans? In the current US innovation ecosystem, having patent exclusivity and work done by the private sector in the hope of getting these rewards from the patent, that's the primary way that we fund this kind of drug development. But that leads to well-known pathologies and that the drugs that are being developed are the ones with the highest market reward that doesn't always align well with the social value of the drugs. Um, And it might be more effective to have the government doing more direct funding of uh, clinical trials. In, in the paper, you suggest some ways that universities might sort of think about their own patent policies and sort of evaluate the approach that they take to the patents that they file and how they license those patents. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you think universities should do and why you think they should rethink their approach in those ways. So so I think currently the only really compelling justification we have for having patents on publicly funded research is this commercialization story that uh, currently is only compelling for particular inventions like pharmaceuticals. So I think universities that aren't convinced that other patents are justified could use something like the the market test that I suggest in a, another article with Ian Ayers to weed out the inventions for which a patent isn't necessary, where the basic idea is that if you uh, have an invention that people are willing to develop for free or for a non-exclusive license, then that's evidence that the patent isn't needed for 
commercialization and you shouldn't be able to grant an exclusive license or an expensive non-exclusive license in those cases. So I think that's one approach. But I'm also not convinced myself that those patents that aren't justified by commercialization aren't justified by some other means. The other thing I think that's really important for universities to be doing is to investigate these other theories, to think about the role of patents in the kind of tacit knowledge transfer that Rebecca was talking about, to think about their effect on uh, the kind of research that's being done in the first place, the effect on the university revenues, and that universities are, are well positioned to develop a much stronger evidence base so that we know from a social welfare perspective um, what the best combination of patents and this direct science funding is. Mm. Well, so, I mean, when it comes to these other theories, are there ones that you see as being particularly promising? And are there areas that you think universities should be really focusing on or thinking about in terms of asking what their patent policies should look like? I think that the revenue theory is... uh, could be a strong justification in, in an era of declining science funding where it's very difficult for many promising research ideas to get federal funding. Perhaps this is a approach that can lead to more research being funded in the first place. At this point, that's, I think, just a hypothesis and needs to be investigated more. I'll, I'll note that the revenue is not just the direct revenue from the Uh, patent licenses, but also it seems plausible that by allowing university research to be patented, that it will lead to more government funding for research in the first place due to a political economy story of having now concentrated interests who benefit from the patent rents who are lobbying for higher revenue. I've heard anecdotal evidence to support that from people who've been at UC system discussions. Um, but I think it, that also is just a hypothesis at this point. Mm. And what about the knowledge transfer hypothesis you were talking about as well? I mean, like, to what extent do you think that's something that universities should be thinking about in ways perhaps that are different from the way they're thinking about it today? I think that is that is actually an avenue that tech transfer offices seem to be pursuing in that they are they're increasing their focus on inventor-driven startups. And, and there's a lot of, obviously, knowledge transfer involved when an inventor becomes you know, the CEO of a, of a startup or is heavily involved in a startup. And as Lisa mentioned, they are also well-positioned to, to start thinking about uh, more and better measures of the role of patents in the transfer of tacit knowledge um, and that they are directly involved with inventors who are coming to them to disclose inventions and they can collect information from them at that time and throughout the licensing process. So in the paper, you you focus kind of primarily on how universities should think about their own sort of internal patent policies and how they should evaluate the decision about sort of how to pursue or whether to pursue patents and patent licensing in particular circumstances. I wonder if you could just kind of briefly outline what you think that approach ought to look like. I mean, I think that at at the 
simplest level, uh, universities should have more of a burden, whether they're taking it upon themselves or being imposed by agencies or Congress to put forth some public spirited justification for what each patent is doing. And in some cases, that will be a clear commercialization story of we have this technology and no one is currently using this in the industry and we tried to see if someone would not necessarily license it and they want it. And so we've created this startup that's going to work on developing it. And, um, and you can kind of look at the metrics of what's happening there. And in other cases, we'll turn to some of these other theories. But in something like the BU blue LED patents, I think that there isn't currently a good public spirit of justification for what role the... Um, patent rights we're doing in that case, and that having the BU tech transfer office have to make that case and support it in a way that can be investigated and discussed by scholars would help improve aligning uh, vital policy with social welfare. Right. So, I mean, like in line with that observation and kind of maybe stepping outside the paper just a little bit, for a moment. I mean, y- you made some really interesting observations about, you know, decisions universities are making and why they might be making those decisions and the kinds of incentives that re- they're responding to and why. I mean, are, do you think there are lessons, like policy lessons there for Congress about how we ought to think about patent policy and specifically patent policy in, in relation to universities more generally? Sure. And I think there are individual members of Congress who are thinking about this, I mean, particularly thinking about it in the pharmaceutical context, which isn't necessarily the best context, but you'll hear concern about the public having to pay twice for drugs where they're paying once when they're funding the initial research. And again, when they're paying the high price on the patented medicine. And I'm not sure that particular critique is theoretically coherent as it's framed, but the broader point I think is important that we should think about why for research that's been funded by public taxpayer money do we allow patents which we know have additional costs for consumers for other innovators for the innovation ecosystem um like what benefit are we getting that's worth those costs and particularly outside the pharmaceutical industry i don't think we have a good answer Mm, well so lisa and and rebecca i mean in in closing I, i wonder if you just would reflect on the observations in in the paper and what you think this ought to tell us about sort of university patent policy going going forward in other words like you know how should we think about what tech transfer offices are doing what should our goals be and what should universities be prioritizing going forward i think that one important goal for universities uh should be to determine the the reasons that they're pursuing patents and then go about measuring and justifying those reasons so that if they are then to to research those reasons and determine um, that they don't justify their practices, they can then iteratively sort of innovate on their patenting and licensing systems so that the the patents that they are seeking are actually doing what they intend 
for the patents to be doing um, and serving the values that the tech transfer offices want to serve. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the main thing we're trying to emphasize with this paper is in some ways how weak the evidence base is on most things that are the current theories of university patents. Many discussions of people involved in tech transfer tend to be among siloed groups that have a particular view of how the patent system must be having particular benefits and just being comfortable with the current empirical uncertainty and curious about trying to figure out the answers, I think is very important and that there's a lot of opportunities for collaborations between universities and other institutional partners with scholars, including but not limited to myself, who are interested in figuring out the answers to some of these questions. Excellent. Well, Lisa, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a really provocative conversation, I think. A great paper and a uh, important sort of addition to the literature on on university patents and how we ought to think about them. Thanks so much for having us. It was fun talking with you. Thank you. Yeah.